0: The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. I have several memories stored up in my heart where I am so thankful for people giving to us in times of need. So there are many examples that this has happened. When Mallory and I got married, right, so we had a whole bunch of stuff that we didn't need, and we didn't have the stuff that we did need. So when we, when we got married, we had a, a shower, and a bunch of people blessed us with things like silverware, like pots, like pans, knives, uh, even an Apple TV, you know, all these great things... We don't need an Apple TV, but it was a great blessing anyways. And then we moved to New York, and we wouldn't have been able to move had it not been for many people blessing us so that we could, in fact, move. And then when we had Gavin, we didn't have all the baby clothes and baby stuff that we needed. And now, through much of your kindness, we have diapers that are blowing out of our closet. We have wipes galore. We have everything that we need. And you gave us meals so that we could take care of Gavin. These were huge blessings to us. But what we don't consider in the story is the fact that it is actually more blessed for the people who gave to us, according to Jesus. Acts 20, verse 35, he says, It is more blessed to give than to receive. So as much of a blessing as it was for us to receive, and it really was because we needed these things, the truth remains that it is much more blessed to give. And so now I want to tell you a different story of one of the few times when I've experienced this in my own life. Mallory and I were part of a church in Kentucky, and in this church we were involved in a ministry where we went to the prison, and we preached the gospel to them once a month. But there was one time when we partnered with another church, and our goal was to get a bunch of food and feed them, and then spend time with them and talk with them on Thanksgiving Day. But we had to do this with our own money, and we had to spend the night there with them. And I say this not to say, oh, look at how great I have been. No, but I say this because the first thing that came into my mind And in my heart was, is it really worth it for me to give my money and my time for this purpose? I had other plans to go eat with my friends and the food would be provided so it would have been free to me. So I was sacrificing comfort and sacrificing money and sacrificing time. It hurts to give. It is not easy. But when we did all give our money and time to feed them, afterwards we all agreed that this was totally worth it and we had felt more blessed and happy in the Lord and like we were doing what we were supposed to be doing as a church body giving to those who need and sharing Jesus with them as well. So in our passage this morning, we're going to see and we're going to be going through what it looks like for a church to be unified in their pursuit of the gospel their pursuit to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and their neighbor as themselves. And as they do, we will see that their possessions and their money become tools now to bless those who need. So there's two points this morning, and then an application. The first is the unified church, And the second is the empowered church. We're going to see that they were unified in this pursuit, but then we're going to see what empowered them to give of what they had out of their own possessions for the benefit of another. But before we begin, let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into our text. Lord, we do thank you so much for giving us this time to spend in your word, and and God, I just pray that you would be with us in this time. We pray that you would encourage our hearts in the gospel. Those who believe, Lord, I pray that they would be heavily encouraged by the way that you gave to us out of your abundance so that we might have eternal life and joy everlasting. I pray that if there's anyone here who does, who does not know you, Lord, I pray that you would open up their eyes to see the goodness and the richness of the grace of Christ. I pray that they would see their sins and, Lord, that they would run to you knowing that you are the only safe Shelter from the wrath of God. O oh Lord, be with us today. Lord, prepare our hearts to receive the food from your word. Feed us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to read our text, chapter 4, verse 32 to 37, if you'll follow along with me. It says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So before we get into point number one, I want to share with you about this church right now, about the church that is in Jerusalem about where they have come from and where we are at now in the story. So the church consists of the believers that were there at Pentecost. So in chapter 2, verse 41, it says this, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So there's 3,000 that the Lord had saved that day. And then a couple verses later, It says, and the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. So the church is growing. We see that there is an immense growth going on in the early church. But then Peter and John, they go to the temple, and they heal a man, lame from birth, so that he could now walk. Peter then does what he does best, and that is preach a sermon, and he tells them that They, in fact, the Jews, murdered Jesus, but God raised him up from the dead. And that they must now repent and turn back to God in Christ so that their sins may be blotted out. And then in chapter 4, we see that Peter and John are taken to the council. They're arrested before the council, but this is what happens as they are proclaiming the name of the Lord. It says, But many of those who had heard the word... Believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. So again, the church is continuing to grow through the love of, of God shown in the preaching of the word that Peter has done two times now, and now the third time before the council. The council eventually lets them go because the crowd loves them and they have no reason to arrest them. Peter and John come back to the gathering of the believers and pray together concerning the chief priests and the elders who wanted to hurt and even kill them. So we have the state of the church that is brand new. They're recently converted. They've seen God act in their own lives through the giving of the Holy Spirit. They've repented from their sins, run to Jesus. They have seen God's power manifest in the lame man who now walks. They would have known this man. And they see that in their prayers, God is listening, and it caused the place to shake with life. They have seen God, they have felt God, they know God is real. And so that brings us now to chapter 4, verse 32. Now we go into point number one, the unified church. The church has four aspects that we see here in verses 31 to 32 that I want to bring to light. It's not exhaustive of the church, but I think this will be helpful for us as we consider what the church did together. The first thing that I want us to see is that they gathered. They were together. If you look in verse 31, it says, And when they had prayed the place in which they were gathered together. Was shaken. And so we see that the early church, what they were doing is they are all gathering together to pray to the Lord, to know the Lord, because they loved the Lord and they were unified in that specific purpose. The church is meant to be together, to spend time together, to proclaim the word to each other together. We can't do these things unless we are together. And there are specific ways we have planned here so that we can constantly meet together and fulfill what the scriptures say of us to encourage, to exhort one another. We can't do this unless we are together. So we have the men's Bible study, the ladies' Bible study, the Wednesday night worship services. We have the 4th of July picnic that we can gather together. We have community groups, youth groups. All these things are for one purpose to proclaim the word of God to each other, to encourage one another to care for one another. We can't know each other unless we gather together. So the church gathers together. The second thing I want you to see is that they are all gathered together. So it says this in verse 32. It says, Now the full number of those who believed, that word full number means that they were all gathered. There wasn't a believer that was missing. They were all gathered together together for the same purpose again I want to emphasize the point that it's hard to encourage each other unless we are all gathered together we all bring a specific encouragement or exhortation and and care for one another that another doesn't bring so we need each other to all be gathered so that we can get the full encouragement of Christ amen so they gathered and they were all gathered, the full number. And then thirdly, I want to show you that those who gathered were those who believed. Verse 32, again, it says, Now the full number of those who believed, believed what? What, is, what does that mean? Well, that is the church. The church is gathered together. We are called believers because we believe in Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus Christ died in place of us for our sins on the cross, not for his own. And that's exactly what this is talking about here in in chapter 32. They believed what Peter preached about Jesus, that he was crucified at the hands of lawless men, but God, knowing the plan all along, raised him up from the dead, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What they must do now is repent, and that is exactly what they have done. They have gathered together and shown that their love is now for Jesus, not for themselves, not for anything else. So that's the third thing. They were gathered. It was the full number. They believed, and fourth, they were of one heart and soul. If you look in verse 32, it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common. This church was united together for one purpose, to proclaim the word of God with boldness and to give up of their possessions to any who had need. They did not count their possessions as their own. There are many ways a church can fail in unity. And I'm going to go through a few aspects, and I want you to to go along with me and to see in the ways in which maybe your heart tends to one or the other. And then let's correct ourselves with the word of God. Let's go back together and be unified for the main purpose, which is the gospel. So the first way that a church can fall away from this is the most obvious. It is disunity, right? Having disunity among the church is a way in which we fail To be unified together in the same purpose, right? We can't have that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says this to the Corinthian church. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind. And then he goes on to say, Some of you say, I follow Paul. Some of you say, I follow Cephas. Some of you say, I follow Apollos, or I follow Christ. And he goes on to say this, is Christ divided? No, Christ is not divided, absolutely not. Then he goes on a step further and says, was Paul crucified for you? No, there's one Lord and his name is Jesus Christ. We are to be united under his name. Or what about Philippians 4, when Paul entreats Euodia and Syntyche, he says, I entreat you to agree in the Lord, for you are both workers in the Lord. Or what about when Jesus says, can a kingdom divided against itself stand? Right, when the Pharisees are calling him, saying, you cast that demon out by Beelzebul, by another demon. He says, no, a kingdom divided against itself is simple, it cannot stand. Now there are far too many of these divisions and splits happening among churches today. Here's an example of one. I was looking up church splits and this came up. There's a church in Landover, Maryland called Holy Creek Baptist Church which split four ways over one reason. And the reason is this. They could not decide where to place the piano bench. Four ways. There was four different ideas of where we could place this antique piano bench. One was behind the piano. Seems logical. There's one outside by the garden. There's one out in the foyer. And there's one more spot somewhere outside. I can't remember where the fourth one was. But they divided, and now they have four separate services where they don't see each other because they could not agree over a piano bench brothers it's not, it's not necessarily the thing that causes us to vie but it is our own pride it is the unwillingness to, to humbly come before the gospel and be united in that alone and say okay this piano bench isn't that important we can put it behind the piano that's okay The other ways in which a church argues, disagrees, and then splits over are things such as worship music style. People leave because they don't like the music. People will disagree and then split over who to hire for a new pastor. People split, and I was shocked to read this, over the worship pastor's beard length. It can't be shorter than Half an inch, but it can't be longer than an inch and a half. There's one thing that I saw. I was like, why are we arguing about this? Anyways, there's other disagreements about whether or not to build a playground or a cemetery. I mean, you can go on and on about reasons to split that are ridiculous, that are not gospel-centered. But I do want to say there are things in which we should stand firm on. We must stand firm in the fact that we are saved by grace alone in Christ alone by faith alone and we preach the word alone for the glory of God alone these are, these are things that we must stick together in and other things that, that split churches are things like I prefer this that seems to be the main thing that splits I prefer this and it's against you so I'm going to do my own thing whatever that may be. But the most common one that I saw was sin. I have been hurt by people in the church before, therefore, I don't want to go to church. Therefore, I'm never going back to church. And from my research, this seems to be over and over and over again said of the reasons why people have left. This ought not to be so, brothers and sisters, because we are called to be holy as the Lord our God is holy. Hebrews 12 says, he says, Strive for holiness and peace with everyone, without which no one will see the Lord. We must strive for that peace. And when we do sin against one another, let us go to our brother or sister and tell them their fault, and let us be quick to forgive, quick to listen, slow to anger, forgive one another for no other reason because God in Christ has forgiven you. But we can also fall in a direction where we are unified but for the wrong purpose. Right, Luke 23 verse 12 talks about Herod and Pilate becoming friends that day in which they were at once enemies for the same purpose of crucifying Jesus. That's a bad unity to have. Or the crowds in Luke twenty three, it says, They all cried together away with this man and release Barabbas. They were unified, but for the wrong purpose. Or in Acts four, twenty seven, just a couple verses earlier, it says, For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant, whom you anointed both Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, all to do what? Whatever your hand had predestined to take place. That was to crucify him. So we can be unified in the wrong areas, in which we should not be. We should not be unified. But we also can be unified and take this to a whole another level. Have any of you ever heard of something called Christian communism? Anybody? Yeah, I, I didn't hear about it either. Caleb told me about it. Uh, but it is a real thing. and It is very sad, and it's based on these section of verses, verses 32 and 37, where you basically own nothing, and you all live together in a commune, and you're forced to make these decisions, right? It's, it's not out of love. It's just out of compulsion. You give all of your stuff, and, then, and you're, just, you're forced to just disown everything that you have. I don't think that's what this is talking about. Acts chapter 5, when he's talking to Ananias, he says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Right? Implying that you do own stuff. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So we're not, we're not, we're not going for a Christian communism thing here. And we're also not saying that you never disagree with one another. We're not just simply yes men, and, and we just agree with everything. No, we, 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 in this room, we have differing views on a ton of things. I am positive because I've talked to you, and we've disagreed. That's okay because we agree on the main thing. And it doesn't mean that we're all doing the same thing. We're not all teachers. We're not all one part. We're not all arms. We're not all legs. In 1 Corinthians, it says, There are many parts, yet one body. So that doesn't mean we all do the same thing. And it's not like we're all here because we root for the same sports teams or any such thing. We're unified in one purpose. And now I'm going to go to Christian unity, the one true unity we have. It's focused on Jesus, centered on the gospel. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what we're unified around because he gave his all for us. We're going to get more to that later. But the second thing is that we're focused on each other, loving your neighbor as yourself. Right? We see that, that because of the great grace that was upon them all, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. It caused love to explode among them. Now the word needy is an interesting term. And it's a very difficult one to describe to us here in America who have everything at our disposal. So we need to understand the difference between needs and wants. It doesn't mean that they were giving so that they could have a 90-inch TV. No, that's not a need. But I was very blessed last Wednesday when Viv talked about how she was blessed to go to Belarus and experience the hospitality from church members who had very little. But what they did have, they were offering to them to stay and to eat and to be with them, the hospitality they had. And as I think, in America, and for myself, I have to constantly battle the desire for more and for excess. The newer and the better thing so I want to challenge you to be content with what you have and instead of seeking out how to get more material possessions, to go and do something like a mission trip, where we see the contentment of a church who has little but they're happy in Christ but in the meantime, I want you to consider your heart and your willingness to give up stuff now, are you willing to give it up for the sake of another Now, how did the church here supply the needy? It says that they laid it at the apostles' feet. So we don't know all the needs within the church. We can't know every single thing. But who does know is our, is our leaders. So when we give to the church, it's like laying it at the apostles' feet to distribute to those who have needs. When we give to the church, we are giving it to those whom we trust to give the money out appropriately. We trust that our elders are not smuggling in the money. Right? We trust them. But I have to ask this question, is why in the world would they give their biggest possessions? What would compel somebody to give their house and their land and their property to the church. So that's our second point, is the empowered church. They must be empowered by the grace of God to do such a thing. Because as you may already know, giving without having any return is very hard to do. I suspect that you are like me, and then when an opportunity arises, a battle goes on in your mind, is, is it worth it or I could use this for X, Y, and Z. So this point, I want to dedicate to how this church was able to do what they did. And I want to draw some principles for ourselves. Because I don't want anybody tricking you into saying, if you give this much, you will get it sevenfold later on. I don't want you to think that. That is not biblical giving. Not biblical to do that. Godly giving is giving without the expectance of being repaid in an earthly, monetary way. We're giving so that the needy can have their basic needs met. That's why we're doing it. But you will be repaid, but not in a way that you expect. You will be repaid in heaven. For what we give unto the least of these, we give unto Christ. And doing such a thing is what James calls pure and undefiled religion, to give to those who can't repay. So let's go in. And The first way in which they were empowered is by prayer. And that is what Caleb preached about last week was all about this giant prayer that they have after being let go by the chief priests and the elders who wanted them to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. But when they prayed... They were given more boldness to speak the word. And we must not disconnect that portion of Scripture to our scripture now. It is all connected together. When it says in verse 32, "Now the full number, it is just a continuation from their prayer. This prayer shook the place. They felt Jesus, they felt the Holy Spirit and live in them, so much so that it says that the walls were shaking. and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, right? That doesn't mean that they were just now being converted to Christ. No, that means that they were filled with the joy of knowing their God was with them. And knowing that their God was with them and listens to their prayer, compelled them to give what they had so that they too could live. Again, we see... The Lord's command, most prominently shown right here, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, and then your neighbor as yourself. That is what true love does. It gives. True Christian love. This church was able to give their possessions because they saw the power of God acting in their prayers. And if you see God acting in your prayers, you see that your possessions don't hold as much weight as they used to. We have a bigger and better God. They were empowered by prayer, but they were also empowered by, number two, unity. Now, I'm not going to belabor this point because I just spent a lot of time talking about the importance of unity. But, but just know that we are always united around something. You're never going to be in a place that's gathered together where you're not united around a specific purpose But again, the focus has to be on the right purpose, Jesus Christ. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. We want to be together so we can be strong in unity. What can stop a group of people willing to give up everything for each other and whose God answers their prayers and they realize the love of God that is given to them in Christ? And that brings me to my third point, which is the gospel. They are empowered to do such a thing, mainly and primarily through the gospel. Look with me in verse 33. He says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So the great power the apostles were using was giving their testimony Of the risen Lord. That is the the whole arch of of this entire text is the fact that they are doing this because of the resurrected Lord Jesus. So you can imagine the apostles walking around saying this we saw our Lord Jesus beaten. We saw him mocked, we saw him scorned, we saw him bear a crown of thorns deep into his brow. And we were very afraid because we thought we were going to lose our king at this moment. We didn't know what was going to happen. He was carrying his own cross to Calvary. He endured much torment. They mocked him saying that he was all hail the king of the Jews and right before he died he yelled something very peculiar it is finished. We didn't know it at the time but our sins were paid for. That was until of course he rose from the dead. When Jesus rose from the dead we knew for sure he was the son of God. Jesus came, he rose from the grave, and he came to us, and he taught us all things according from the scripture that concerned himself. He said, and he taught us that the Old Testament pointed to him. He sat and he ate food with us. He even came to Thomas here who doubted everything, and yet he believed after seeing his pierced hands inside. And then it says, The expression afterwards is, and great grace was upon them all as they're proclaiming this testimony. The preaching of the word concerning Jesus being resurrected from the the dead gave the rest of the people grace. Gave them grace, not to be saved, they were already saved, but to live in accordance with the gospel. As Caleb read earlier, Philippians 1, 27 May our manner of lives be worthy of the gospel. So this gave them grace to give of what is not important to people who are eternally important. There was not a needy person among them. Now, I don't want to demean the gospel because the gospel's primary goal is for salvation unto all who believe. It saves sinners from the eternal wrath of God, completely and totally wipes whoever trusts in Jesus Christ from their sins. That is the primary goal. But one of the effects of the gospel is that it puts into right perspective the things that we have and the people that are in our lives. The realization of what Christ did for them on their behalf empowered the church of over 5,000 people to give their land so that people who have nothing could now have the necessities to live. A church that believes that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many lives in the same way that he did to serve and to give their lives and possessions for others. A church that truly believes that Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against them with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. If we as a church believe that, We will seek to forgive the debts of others against us. When we see that it is by grace that we have been saved, it is by grace, it is by grace, it is by grace, great grace was upon them all. When we know that, when we know that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God in Christ made us alive together with him by grace, nothing we have done or can do but solely on his work. Oh, how freely you give of yourself. How differently you look at people of whom Christ died for. His work was total, it was perfect, it was forever, and it was for people. It was for his bride. Jesus never once sinned, but rather he fulfilled the law on our behalf. That's Amazing for us who are lawless, who are breakers of the law. He was the perfect Son of God, perfect obedience. What we should do but could never do, He did on our behalf. But then He died on the cross for sins. That doesn't make any sense because He didn't sin. It was for our sins that He stood on the cross. It was for our sins that He said, It is finished. The payment was totally finished. There's not a sin for a believer that is left unwashed by Jesus. Now, if you are a believer, that should give you such great comfort. Everything that you have against God has been paid for. All of your rebellion has been paid for for a believer, for those who trust in Christ. And that sin payment is forever. It lasts 2,000 years ago until eternity. Let that soak into our minds. Let that grace wash over your hearts for a minute. All is done. And Jesus now lives to plead for us. And then he gives of the Holy Spirit to guide us, to pursue us, to live in us. Oh, the length and the depth, the height and the breadth of the love of God to go to such great lengths to show the great love he has for us. Do you believe what I have just said enough now to count your possessions as not merely your own, but for the blessing of others? Do you count your possessions as a mere borrowing for this lifetime? Because when you die, we will not carry our stuff with us. Invest your money, invest your possessions into that which will last into eternity. But how practically do we do that without being homeless? Right? You might be asking yourself, I ask myself that. Do I have to be homeless after hearing this message? No. So take a deep breath. Okay, here we go. We're going to now go into the application part of our sermon. And so I want you to gear up here for the last four points of how we can practically do this in our life, how we can live the gospel to each other. And first off, before we get into our points, I want to say to the unbelievers is that we're not trying to take your money. We don't want your money. What we want for you is to turn from your sins to Christ. If you're an unbeliever, please do not not, Give your money. Do not do anything like that. We want you to hear the gospel and to be saved from your sins. We want you to turn to Jesus who paid for them all. We want you to recognize that you have a a debt your own that you can never repay. But Jesus did. And he ever lives to whoever would come to him, he would accept. So I want that to be very clear. If you're an unbeliever, we do not want your money. We want you to know Jesus. But for those who do believe, I have application for you practically. And the first one is, we must be unified in the gospel, right? We must be, as the first point, all together on the same page in order for us to be as helpful and strong in the Lord as possible, so that means that in your own personal life, you must be enjoying God. You must be soaking in and loving the word of God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And on top of that, you must be meeting with other believers in this church. You must be encouraging one another when you meet. right? Use your time together to talk about and to encourage and to exhort and teach one another about the best news of Jesus' paying for our sins and how we can best serve each other. The second thing we must do as a church is we must hold loosely to our possessions. Right? This text compels us not to hold tightly to the things that we own but it's for the purpose of loving your Savior and your neighbor. That's the reason why we do it. It's not, it's not just for the sake of being minimal. I, I, I don't care any about that. What I want you to do is to hold loosely for your possessions for the purpose of loving God and loving your neighbor as best as you can. Our possessions can never bring us joy in life, but they can provide someone something they need in order to live, in order to continue on. The basic necessities of life, that can provide that for them. Your possessions, your money, your clothes, your food, has the capability to bless someone else. And in so doing, you are showing the world and each other that your hope is not in your possessions, but it is in God. It is in Christ who paid for you. By this, they will know you are my disciples if you love one another. So when you love his body, you are loving him. So I want you to be comfortable giving of your stuff I want you to be comfortable holding loosely not letting it control you but rather controlling your possessions and giving them as to any who has need the third application that I have for us today is to be hospitable right so I know that necessarily that we're not talking about giving up of our houses here but but in our lives, but what we need to do is we need to give up of our houses so that others can be in our lives together. We must open up our places to live. This is the greatest way we can constantly give to each other is by opening up your home, blessing each other, talking to each other about our lives, talking to each other about our Savior, encouraging one another, and it's another way we get to gather together. It's just another opportunity to have fellowship. Sunday mornings are not enough for us to know everything about each other. So let us open up our houses, and that means that other people need to go to your houses. So let's be willing to go and to open. Right? Let's do as our pastor does, which is to have us over, feed us delicious food, have great uh, have a great conversations, play a game or two, great conversation, and then we'll leave with some sweet treats and coffee. That's almost how it goes every time. It's great. <laughs> I do enjoy. Let us do that. Let us open up our houses for the purpose of loving each other. And lastly, fourth, we must give out of love for Jesus, not out of obligation. The last thing that I want to say to our church, and I think this is one of the most important things, is that they gave out of love. They didn't give out of compulsion that they were going to be thrown out of the church or that God would love them less. They wanted to bless them. And so I want to first address your heart in giving because I think that's the most important part to God. When we give out of spite, your offering is not pleasing to God. When you give out of compulsion to earn God's love, that is not pleasing to God. Psalm 51, verse 16, he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so I want to encourage you to feel the love of God. And if you don't, I want you to read the word. I want you to talk to somebody. I want you to pray until you do. It's, we don't always feel the love of God. We don't wake up feeling the love of God. We wake up thinking, me, me, me. But the word of God corrects us. It transforms us. And there are two flaws that we have in giving to the church. Right? We have on this side that some churches and pastors are going to hunt for your money, and that's why they gather. They want to take as much money from you as they possibly can and go and buy a private jet and fly it all over the world. That's what they want. That's sad, but it's true. And the second unfaithful and flaw is that there's poor teaching in discipleship and faithful and joyful giving. So we do want to talk about giving because it's a way that we can participate in the gospel ministry together. There are churches that neglect talking about money at all for fear that the church is being selfish or for fear that they're using the people for their money. Well, that's not what we're speaking about. That is foolish. The church responds to the gospel by giving up of their lives, taking up their cross, denying themselves, and following him. And one way in which we do that is by giving of our money. It's not going to no purpose. It is going so that the gospel might go forth. That's the purpose. If you believe that the gospel needs to go forth and you love Jesus, you would want the gospel to go forth and you would want to participate. This is just one way we can do that. And the, one of the sad realities is, is that our church would, in fact, die if we have no money at all. We need to pay for certain things in order to live. At our last business meeting, it was brought forth to the members' attention that we were, in fact, lacking in this area. Now, I want you to say that money is not the lifeblood of the church. That is not the case but I do want you to be faithful in participating in the gospel ministry and one way you can do that is by giving. It's one way we can pick up our cross and follow him. Expect that it will hurt, but it's not because of any other reason, but we hold too tightly to our stuff. That's why it hurts. But look to Jesus as you give when it hurts, because he hurt so much on the cross for our forgiveness. He did that out of love. He, not, he didn't look to the left or to the right. He took the cup of wrath that the Father gave for him so that we could be participators in the gospel, so that we could have the immeasurable riches of grace poured out upon us. While the Son of God was being stricken on the cross, we were entering into the family of God. Let that love flow in every way possible that we can for each other, for one another. Let us live in accordance with the gospel in a manner worthy of the gospel. Let me pray for us. Lord, I do thank you, God, for giving us this time to spend in your word, to be encouraged by the great love of Jesus. Lord, I also um, am, am so encouraged that the church in Acts chapter 4 was unified in the gospel. And I pray, Lord, that our church, though it is unified in the gospel, would continue to grow in love for one another, grow in love for their Lord, their Savior. And God, I pray that if there is anyone here who does not know you, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. And God, I pray for the members and for those who believe here. God, that you continue to allow us and give us the grace to hold loosely to our possessions and to give because you first gave your son and you gave much more than we could ever repay. But Lord, we just want to enjoy you and know you and know your love and it's in his name we pray. Amen.